Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. And I'm here today with Benjamin Spackman, backed by popular demand, to talk about the Hebrew Bible. The last time we had Ben on the show, he introduced us to different genres of scripture. Ben is currently in the final stages of writing Reading Scripture, Reading Creation, the ancient context of Genesis 1, a draft of which I was able to explore in preparation for this interview. You mentioned on the opening page of your book that you often get asked questions about Genesis between church meetings with the expectation, and I'm going to quote here, that whatever answers exist can be delivered in a five-second soundbite. Your short and reluctant answers, usually prefaced by it's complicated, rarely satisfy. However, when you are allowed to lay the necessary groundwork, you have much better success. What does that groundwork look like? Well, right now in the book, it looks like about 80 pages. But we do have to do this work because it is a little bit complicated. And the problem is we don't like complicated, we like simple. But we have to look at four things in particular. We have to look at our understanding of revelation, prophets, and scripture, which are kind of unconscious assumptions. And then we have to talk about one major conscious one, that is interpretation. How do we interpret scripture? And that is kind of a formal thing. Now in the church, we emphasize revelation, we emphasize prophets and scripture, but we never talk about them very much in detail. We never get into what they mean and how they work and competing ideas of them. And what that means that we don't talk about these things explicitly in detail is that a lot of Mormons unconsciously borrow a lot of Protestant ideas just through cultural osmosis about how revelation works, about what a prophet should be like, about what scripture should be. And a lot of times these assumptions aren't very justified. But in order to decide if they're justified or not, we have to become aware of what they are and then say, oh, does this make sense that I think this about revelation? Is that how it actually appears to work in light of scripture and what we know and, and logic and so on? There's a lot to talk about there. And generally, in my institute classes, once I have walked people through these things, when we actually get to talking about Genesis, they say, oh, well, this totally makes sense. But you have to do that groundwork first, because otherwise it doesn't make sense. You mentioned rethinking unconscious assumptions, such as a prophet should be able to know what correct astronomy is, even if their surrounding culture believes something different. For instance, how was the Earth-Sun relationship seen in biblical times versus how do we see it right now? There's this idea that prophets are essentially reading off of God's divine encyclopedia that has all the divine facts and the way things really are and that there's no human mediation, there's no speaking to human level. And I think a lot of that is kind of the result of the Enlightenment. I said this in the last podcast, but the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution really changed some of our ideas. We expect that because God knows everything, 
that since prophets in Scripture represent God, prophets in Scripture should know things and they should be accurate. There are some problems with that. And when we do look at the earth and the sun in the Bible, that cosmology is not modern at all. In fact, when Galileo, who was not the first to come up with heliocentrism, the idea that the sun was at the center and other things rotated around it, that was Copernicus. But when Galileo got in trouble for this with the Catholic Church and their scientists and scientists in general, it was basically written off as being a philosophy of men and was contrary to scripture. And for us today, we've inherited a couple hundred years of heliocentrism. It's not really in dispute anymore. But what we don't realize is that his critics were right. Heliocentrism is completely opposite to scripture. It's not compatible with the cosmology in the Hebrew Bible. And it was a philosophy of men in the sense that it was people looking at data and trying to make sense of it. When I say I'm trying to relook at these assumptions, what I'm really trying to do is formulate a way of thinking about these in a way that accounts for the clearly human and adapted elements in scripture. Like the fact that Genesis presupposes a cosmology with a flat earth and a solid dome overhead that keeps out the cosmic waters above and below. Most of us aren't even aware that that's what Genesis 1 and the rest of the Hebrew Bible is teaching. And that gets echoed a bit in Moses and Abraham as well. So we can't just write it off as the Bible not being translated correctly. So as we approach Genesis, would you say we need a robust theory of revelation and prophethood that allows such a thing to qualify as scripture as well as the systematic way of understanding and interpreting it? Yeah, I think we really do need to look at these assumptions and match them to the data. I think one of the problems is oftentimes we haven't read the Bible or other scripture close enough to even be aware that there are problems that we need to be thinking about. And so what happens is people have these assumptions that they're not aware of, and then they run into something, whether it's genocide in the Old Testament, whether it's Brigham Young's humanity with the priesthood and temple ban, we tend not to think about these things until something uncomfortable brings them up. Let me say one other thing about Genesis being wrong, and I kind of put that in air quotes. Technically speaking, Genesis is wrong in terms of cosmology. There's a sense in which Genesis is science, but if we recognize it as science, that is, they're trying to answer questions, they're using the best available data, they're fitting that data to their worldview, then Genesis 1 is science. But if it's science, we also have to admit that it's ancient science, that we have now surpassed. Is Genesis wrong? In a sense, yes, very much. But the question is, was Genesis supposed to be conveying scientific information, or is there some other purpose to that entire chapter? And the problem is for us today, we tend to go to this chapter thinking that's what it's for. Those are our questions. If we think of Genesis as a tool, we want Genesis to be a hammer. But for the Israelites, it was really a screwdriver. Now, you can try screwing in a screw with the claw on the back of a hammer, and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. But there's a sense in which Genesis was absolutely right. It was the tool the Israelites needed at the time to meet their theological needs. And that's what Revelation is for. As Joseph Smith said, it's adapted to the circumstances in which the children of the kingdom find themselves. If we're only looking at Genesis 1 in terms of let's evaluate the information it conveys against what we know today about the physical origins of the universe and science, yes, it's wrong. But that's also not the purpose for which it was given. 
Cleverly, you state, in the beginning, there was misunderstanding, but really it's misunderstanding on our part. There are certain inherited traditions that might need to be looked at before reevaluating our notions regarding Genesis. If you read scripture closely, both modern and ancient, we also see that God takes things in the environment and gives them new meaning. He transforms them. In this sense, he's a little bit like MacGyver in the sense that he takes what's on hand and he puts it to new and creative use for the good of the kingdom. One example of this in the Old Testament is actually circumcision. We meet it with Abraham, but we know from historical sources outside the Bible that circumcision was not this brand new thing. Abraham had been in Egypt. The Egyptians had been doing it for a long time. So when God says to Abraham, let's do this circumcision thing, he didn't really have to explain it. Abraham knew what it was, but it takes on new significance for Abraham as a sign of the covenant. So that's kind of accommodation. Concordism is the idea that whatever scripture says has to match science. That is, there has to be concord between them. And that tends to mean that to make them match up, either you have to tweak one side or the other. That is, you have to tweak science to be wrong so that the earth has really only existed for 6,000 years and there's no evolution, things like that. Or you have to read into Genesis 1 that days don't really mean day. It really means an indefinitely long period of time. And Mormons inherited these ideas along with a lot of other people. I mean, the idea that a day is an indefinite age goes back to the 1600s even. The more I've studied Genesis and the ancient Near East, the more I've come to realize that our inherited assumptions about concordism they're not really justified. They're mostly a product, again, of the scientific revolution and the enlightenment and some other things. I think another idea that we have that needs to be looked at some more, it revolves around the idea of complete harmony and consistency and revelation in scripture. I think that's also something that we very much inherited from Protestants and has done a little bit of theological damage or at least has pushed us in some wrong directions at times. Before we talk about what the Israelite authors might have meant when they were writing Genesis, let's lay further groundwork by talking briefly about what Joseph Smith did with the opening chapters of Genesis. Because of anyone, Joseph Smith would be the embodiment of someone who believes in scripture being added upon line upon line because through his ministry, that's what his revelations did. They built upon each other. What did Joseph Smith do with Genesis? That is such an interesting question. And I'll try to do this as briefly, but as clearly as possible. Joseph Smith read scripture very closely and he was very attuned to what we might call issues in it. They could be of various kinds. They might be disagreements between parallel passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for example. They might be italicized words in the King James Version. The King James translators had kind of a funny idea. They put words in italics that weren't technically in Hebrew, but were kind of required for translation. No modern translation that I'm aware of does that anymore because that's just how translation works. Everything you're saying is not found in the original because that's what a translation is, right? Joseph was very attuned to italicized words, to contradictions, to seams, to bumps in the text. And when you open up the Bible to in the beginning, there is a massive bump because you get 
this creation story in Genesis 1. And then in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, you get a second creation story that seems to assume that a whole bunch of stuff that got created in Genesis 1 hasn't been created yet. And so there's this massive problem that I call the double creation problem. Joseph Smith is thinking about this, and he gives us first the book of Moses. And the book of Moses is formally the Joseph Smith translation to the book of Genesis. And parts of Moses correspond very closely to the King James version of Genesis, and parts of it have no parallel. And the book of Moses deals with the double creation problem in one way. We'll fast forward a couple of years, and we get the book of Abraham. And the book of Abraham also revises Genesis, but in a different way. And I think there's something significant in the fact that between the time of the book of Moses and the time of the book of Abraham, Joseph Smith studied Hebrew. And a lot of the changes in the book of Abraham that don't match up with the King James Version can be correlated to the Hebrew underneath. In other words, if we can kind of talk about this thing called the JST process, like a algorithm or a computer program, the King James English gets fed through the JST process and out comes the book of Moses. And I think the creation parallels in the book of Abraham are Joseph taking the Hebrew of Genesis 1 and feeding that through the JST process and out comes the book of Abraham. And there's some really interesting things to point to in this. When we look at the King James Version, then Moses, then Abraham and the temple, and you look at all the little changes, sometimes you find that the King James Version and Moses are the same, but Abraham is different. And sometimes you find that the King James reads one way, Moses changes it, and Abraham reads like the book of Moses. But then we have a very small category of interesting changes where Joseph Smith changed something in the book of Moses, but Abraham reverts back to what the King James text says. I think what's going on in these changes is that Joseph was reacting to the English. I mean, that's what he was doing with the JST. That's very clear from a lot of very conservative Mormon scholars is he is working with the English and reacting to it in what Robert J. Matthews called a study and thought process. I think what happens here is that Joseph reacts to the English of Genesis and says, this isn't right. This is how it should be. As you may know, as Elder McConkie talked about publicly a little, Moses, Abraham, and Genesis all more or less do the same events in the same order. And when you go to the temple with its creation depiction, it does not follow that order at all. It gets shuffled completely. And I think there are reasons for that that I'm not going to go into here. But the temple solves the double creation problem in a brand new and very creative way that I think is really interesting and happens to dovetail closer to modern ideas of cosmology than the other three do. If you're looking at Moses and Abraham and you're saying, well, these should all be inspired, so they should all be the same. Why don't they all match? You're kind of coming at it again as if the revelation is simply a page out of God's divine encyclopedia again. Like you're just going back to the original story and reading it, and Moses should have gotten that story, and Abraham should have gotten that story, and the temple should be that story. And so you might come away going, well, why are they different? Aren't they inspired? Shouldn't they be the same? And the point is, we have to think about the assumptions about revelation and prophets and God's purposes that is playing into these books. And I think what's going on is that 
Joseph is acting as a prophet, and as prophets did anciently, they often adapted older material to teach new things. They would revise and embed new things in it, change it in certain ways. Think about how Jesus does this in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes things, he transforms them, sometimes he contradicts them, but he's referring to them. He's modernizing them in a sense. And so what Joseph is doing is he is taking new doctrine that he is receiving through Revelation, and he is embedding it into successive revisions of Genesis, which eventually culminates in the temple. I don't think we should look at Moses says this and Abraham says that, so Moses is wrong and Abraham is correct. I think that's a very binary way of looking at things that doesn't actually fit either scripture or what God seems to be doing, to my view with these things. I don't think any of them are intending to give us the original story as we would think of it in material terms of physics and physical origins and so on like that. It's an adaptation for other purposes. Okay, we've laid the groundwork, finally. What major events lie behind the general view of Genesis held by scholars today? It's not just a question of assumptions and method of interpretation. In some sense, the reason why we understand Genesis the way we do is because the Old Testament was written for its contemporaries. Unlike the Book of Mormon, which was edited for our day, most ancient scripture was written for people who spoke the language, understood the events and the references, and so they didn't include stuff that could go without saying. But then what happens when the culture changes and history moves on and you're 500 or 1,000 or 3,000 years later, that original contextual stuff that everyone who heard it would have instinctively understood is completely lost to us. It's not entirely our fault that we've misunderstood Genesis so badly. There's a narrative that kind of goes like this that is really wrong that from time immemorial, Jews and Christians shared this monolithic interpretation of Genesis. And then in the 1850s, Darwin and science came along. And now your choice today is between a faithful interpretation, which is literal, or capitulating to science and reading it some other way, which God and Moses did not intend. Uh, there's a lot that's wrong with that narrative. I, most, pretty much everything is wrong with that narrative except for the word Genesis. And I can't go into too much depth here, but if you look at the history of interpretation of Genesis, it's always been varied. You go back to both uh, Philo on the Jewish side and Augustine, who wrote several commentaries on Genesis, and they're both dealing with what we might call scientific issues of the day in interpretations of Genesis. So this is not a new problem, but really... Darwin and science has very, very little to do with how I interpret Genesis and how respectable scholars of Jewish and Protestant and Catholic and atheist interpret Genesis. The two things that have done the most to reshape our interpretation are, one, the documentary hypothesis, which I'll talk about briefly, and two, the rediscovery of this ancient Near Eastern context that was lost for 2,000 years or so. Uh, so first, the documentary hypothesis. There's a podcast about that by Corey Crawford. You can go listen to that. But close readers of the Bible, Jewish and Christian, from the Middle Ages onward, who were reading very closely, were aware that, like Joseph Smith, there were these themes, there were these contradictions, there were stories told twice, but differently. 
And they were trying to figure out how to make sense of that. And eventually there was this idea put forward to accommodate these that said, well, what we have in the first five books of the Old Testament is really a compilation of four sources. And it's very much like what Mormon did and Moroni did with the Book of Mormon. Here are these sources, we're gonna meld them together. What is interesting about that is it's in the 1700s and it puts the authors of Genesis 1 in Babylon or around Babylon, roughly. There's debate about this. There's debate about virtually every aspect of Genesis 1. But most scholars agree that the people who were responsible for the form of Genesis 1 in which we have it today, because they didn't do it whole cloth, they didn't invent it, has strong Babylonian influence. They're aware of things going on in Babylon. Now that's important because in the late 1800s, archeologists and looters, which were often the same thing before it became professionalized, were finding all of these tablets from the ancient Near East in writing systems they couldn't read in languages they weren't familiar with. And eventually they started cracking these and started being able to read them. In the 1880s, there was the discovery and publication in English of a text called Enuma Elish, which is a Babylonian text that is really about how the god Marduk became king of the gods. But it also has a creation story in it where Marduk plays a very important part, and it bears close resemblances in some important ways to Genesis 1. These scholars who were German, and in Germany at the time there was lots of anti-Semitic sentiment, who were Protestant, so there was a lot of anti-Old Testament, anti-ritual sentiment, and we're just getting at these texts for the very first time, they said, oh, okay, we found where the Jews stole all their stuff from. It's all Babylonian. They just stole it from the Babylonians. Today, there are a lot of different scholars who have said, they came at this with some pretty bad biases, and we now understand what this is doing. But it appears that Genesis 1 is interacting in some way with Anumelish. And we have come to know that during the time that the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, so this is after Lehi leaves and the temple's been destroyed and they've all been hauled off to Babylon in the exile, we know that while the Jews were there, Enuma Elish was recited and reenacted out loud at least once a year in Babylon. So the Jews are being exposed to this stuff and it captures a lot of the theology and worldview of the Babylonians at the time. First, the documentary hypothesis put Genesis 1 in the ballpark of Babylonian stuff. And then we discovered these records that told us about this Babylonian creation epic, that's what it's been called, even though it's, that's not really its purpose, that has these ties to Genesis 1 that also implies Genesis 1 has some creation of Babylon. And those two things are really the ones driving how we understand Genesis 1 today, how I understand it, how many, many other scholars understand it. I think that will be surprising to some people because we get the impression sometimes that it was all Darwinism. Many Christian believers are willing to accept that Genesis is not science and not history. So what is it? Do you mind sharing your perspective on who wrote it and why? What was the context? What was it responding to? Well, most people, Jews, Christians, and Mormons, traditionally, grew up with the idea that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And that's a very old tradition, actually. But it's not actually found in the Old Testament itself. 
There are a lot of attributions of authorship in the Old Testament that we have good reason to assume are not accurate. And it may be that they were doing something different with these attributions than we think. That is, it's less about authorship and more about authority. That is, the first five books of the Old Testament have the binding authority of Moses, even if they weren't necessarily written by him. But there are things in the text, both in and out of Genesis, that strongly point in other directions that suggest this tradition isn't entirely correct, historically speaking. And this dovetails a little bit with the documentary hypothesis idea. So I don't want to go into that too much. I'll just refer you to the other podcast that Corey Crawford did. For example, the language in Genesis 1, the Hebrew, has a particular style, and it is a relatively modern style in the Hebrew Bible. It is not one of the most antique ones. But Moses, at face value, would not have spoken that kind of Hebrew. He would not have known that kind of Hebrew. And so, at best, what you have is like a mosaic tradition that gets updated or filtered through who I think were inspired priests. Kind of the current scholarly consensus is that Genesis 1, as it's come down to us today, was written by Israelite priests in a Babylonian cultural context. They're the ones who were responsible for it. They shaped it in very priestly ways. What are some of the breadcrumbs left by Genesis's priestly authors? I want to start with an analogy. Apple is a very popular computer company, and they have a fairly distinctive design aesthetic. If I asked you to imagine a kitchen that was designed by Apple, what would it look like? Most people would be able to describe it. It would be kind of minimalist. It would probably be metal. It would be clever in some ways. But if I say, imagine that Apple designed a kitchen, most people would think about more or less the same thing because Apple's design and aesthetic is so unified and clear. When it comes to Genesis 1, if you sat down and said, okay, Israelite priests, I want you guys to tell us the priestly version of Israelite creation tradition, what comes out is Genesis 1. And there are a lot of hints in there. First of all, the language is very priestly. That is, there's vocabulary that only seems to be used by priests. Some of this is kind of technical, but it, I go into detail in the book, but the vocabulary is in there. The concerns are in there of priests. Now, what would priestly concerns be? First of all, priests were not just the temple workers. Priests were also responsible for teaching Torah to the Israelites. That is, they were the primary ones teaching the doctrine. And so they were very concerned with keeping holy separate from unholy, teaching Torah. Most people in the ancient Near East were not terribly concerned about days of the week. But priests, because they had to know what the holy days were, which days were holy and which days were not, kept very close track of the calendars. They were very calendrically oriented. They were very day-oriented. And so when Genesis talks about how God creates time for seasons, they're not talking about planting seasons. They're talking about the festival days, the holy days. They have to keep track of this stuff very carefully in order to know when the holy days are and when they're not, because they're the ones responsible for regulating that stuff among the Israelites and teaching it to the Israelites. There are priestly concerns like the calendar and priestly conceptions. One of the concerns of the priests that is a natural outgrowth of holy and unholy is the idea of separation and kinds. That is, from a priestly perspective, 
God is the ultimate priest, and God creates by separating, by putting things in their proper piles, by bringing order to this mix. Everything has its own kind. The kinds are separate. They reproduce after their own kind because otherwise that's chaos. Uh, later in Leviticus, we know that the priests have these regulations about you don't mix two different kinds of grain in a field. You don't mix two kinds of cloth and clothing. You keep separate things separate. And we see God creating by separation repeatedly in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 has very close literary ties to the construction of the tabernacle later in Exodus. In fact, Genesis 1, in a sense, is kind of the creation of God's cosmic temple, and priests would have naturally thought of creation in these terms. The seven-day structure of Genesis, which is the one thing that everyone knows about Genesis 1, has much more to do with a particular priestly concern in context of the exile than trying to tell us how long it actually took God to create. That is, remember that the priests were in charge of sacred space, that is the temple, but they were also in charge of sacred time, that is, these holy days. And once you're in Babylon, the holy space has been destroyed, that is, the holiest space, because they had these concentric gradations of holiness. Israel is holier than the rest of the world. Jerusalem is holier than the rest of Israel. The Temple Mount is holier than the rest of Jerusalem. The Holy of Holies is the holiest place. It's actually like a mountain where you ascend to the top, and the top is the holiest place. In Babylon, since they no longer had sacred space, they focused on sacred time. And what is the regular sacred time for the Israelites? It is that seventh day. So by portraying God as creating in seven days and God rests on the seventh day, Israelites too, even though they can't honor sacred space anymore, can keep sacred time by keeping the Sabbath. The Babylonians didn't really do this. They had holy days too, but they didn't have a regular one every seventh day as far as we know. We know very clearly what the purpose is of this seven-day thing. It's, it's a priestly innovation, as Mark Smith calls it. It's not present in the other Israelite creation stories. The priests would have been very aware of it in another context because in and out of Israel, when you make a temple, when you do something along those lines, it frequently happens in a function of seven. That is, you dedicate the temple over seven days and the seventh day is the peak. You build Solomon's temple over seven years and then it's dedicated at the end. If priests are thinking about creation as God's temple, it's naturally going to happen in a multiple of seven. And if you want to emphasize sacred time, that's going to be seven days with the seventh day as the holy day, the Sabbath, the day of rest, like God does. There are priestly conceptions, priestly terminology, priestly concerns woven all the way through Genesis 1. And these are completely opaque to your typical reader in English. These come from Hebrew scholars who have spent years looking at this and looking at connections. It makes a lot of sense. It holds together once you're aware of them. It's very coherent. Now, if you're bothered by the idea that Genesis 1 comes from Israelite priests and not Moses, Think about it this way. If you go look in the Bible dictionary, it does something a lot like what some conservative Protestant scholars do. That is, they say they're proponents of Mosaic authorship. But when you go read them, what they actually say is, well, Moses probably used pre-existing sources or traditions. And it's also clear that the text has been edited pretty heavily since Moses' day. And we can't tell what's Mosaic anymore anyway. 
And that's more or less what the Bible dictionary says. Saying mosaic authorship, even by these conservative scholars, is really more of a, I'm one of you guys in the faith kind of thing. I'm not one of those secular scholars outside. But practically speaking, it comes down to the same thing. If you want to think that Moses wrote a version of Genesis 1 that later got super heavily edited by priests in Babylon, that's completely fine. That's what the Bible dictionary says, and that's kind of what the book of Moses implies a little. It, it's more complicated than that. There are different ways to understand Mosaic authorship, and virtually nobody thinks that Moses himself penned the Hebrew consonants that we have in our Hebrew Bibles today. Do you know where we got the Bible dictionary? Yeah. It's you? a 200 year old version. It was the Cambridge. Yeah, the Cambridge yeah. version. And Dr. Matthews was asked to Mormonify it. Yeah, and McConkie helped a Mormonify? lot. Mormonify? Mormonize. Mormonize. There we go. The Borg assimilated it. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> Besides the obvious gripes of having Solomon's temple destroyed, stealing the Ark and the Covenant, scattering their people, being taken into captivity, what sort of beefs might the priests have had with the Babylonians? What were they trying to prove with the creation narrative, or was it something else? What were they trying to fix? These, again, are completely opaque to your typical reader who just opens up the Bible in English with no commentary and not even any sense, really, that there is this stuff we found in context that can shed light on it. And there is a good number of these elements, and I'll try to just focus on one or two that are quickly explainable. But, for example, in Enuma Elish and other Babylonian literature, the role of humanity and the nature of humanity was very low. They were essentially slaves to a low-class tier of gods, and humanity was created basically for drudgery. And it was not an optimistic view of humanity. By contrast, one of the things you find repeated in Genesis 1 is God sees creation, it's good. And the next day it's good. And the next day it's good. And humanity gets created and it's very good. And moreover, in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, God creates humanity, both male and female, in the image of God. And Mormons tend to read that as kind of a anthropomorphic, which there are certainly aspects of. Israelites conceived of God as a anthropomorphic being, generally. But it also means something else that's come out from Babylonian material. That is, in Babylon and elsewhere, if I remember correctly, like Egypt, there was only one person who was said to be the image of God, and that was the king. And so by not only saying that creation, and especially human creation, is very good, by saying that all of humanity is an image of God, it takes this royal prerogative and it spreads it out to everybody, not just the king, but the lowest human slave. In contrast to Enum Elish, Genesis 1 really elevates the nature of humanity and the nature of mortal creation, that is, this area we live in, this sphere we've been assigned by deity, to a very high level, saying it's very good and we are in the image of God. That is something that the Babylonians would not have learned from their Babylonian texts and traditions and myths and so on. So that's one that I think is really important and obvious, and it's something that Genesis is very clearly doing that we're not aware of, generally. 
Sometimes the Old Testament is reduced down to a few well-known stories, true confessions. I know all eight of them. Two of them happen after David, Ruth and Esther. I know the Exodus one really well because of Cecil B. DeMille. In fact, even today, we've been reducing Genesis to the creation story. Most of the stories we know are found in the book of Genesis. The creation gets three chapters. The Joseph story gets 13 chapters. Why does so little of the rest of the Bible refer to Genesis 1 when it absorbs so much of a modern Christianity's consciousness and concern? Yeah, let me break that into two questions. The Hebrew Bible almost never refers to Genesis 1 explicitly, although there are similar ideas elsewhere. But it's hard to say that they're referring to Genesis 1 as opposed to the things that Genesis 1 itself was kind of riffing on and modifying, like Psalm 74 and Psalm 104. But even Genesis 2 through 3, which we think of as the fall with Adam and Eve, is almost never referred to again elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. Adam is virtually non-existent throughout the Hebrew Bible. And this is something we have to wrestle with a bit. One of the reasons that this might be the case, that creation gets such little attention in contrast to other things. I mean, the Joseph story at the end of Genesis starts in Genesis 39 and goes all the way through Genesis 49. It takes up way more pages and chapters than creation. One reason for this might be that creation for them did different things than it did for us. They weren't terribly interested in those questions, perhaps. Another reason, and there's good argument for this, is that Genesis 1 came to the form we know it in after most of the rest of the Hebrew Bible was written. We often forget that the canonical order, that is the order that the books are in today and the stories within the books, is quite different than the chronological order of events they're describing, order that they were written in. And so even though Genesis 1 comes first, it was written fairly late, relatively speaking. We tend to miss that. As for the question of why it occupies so much of public debate and exegesis and argument today, I think that's because we did lose the context of Genesis 1 and also because we tend to treat Scripture, and this is not just Mormons, but we tend to treat Scripture like a multi-tool, like a leatherman. That is, this is the tool we have. We've got to use it for everything. As new things started being discovered in the 1500s and 1600s that the Bible did not seem to know anything about, like the Western Hemisphere or the inhabitants of the Western Hemisphere. This posed some serious problems to how people understood the Bible. And so they started having to rethink some things. And then obviously, as we got more and more with the age of the earth, which had to be reinterpreted with Things like physical origins and Darwin and the earth not being at the center of creation and all kinds of things, people started turning to Genesis as a multi-tool. That is, this looked like it responded to those questions, even if Genesis was never designed with those questions in mind. I doubt very strongly that Moses or Israelite priests thought much about the age of the earth or physical origins. But because those became pressing questions, we said, okay, well, what, what in Scripture is relevant to this? Well, here's a story of origins. It must be about physical origins. So how can this play in and answer these questions? I think the questions that we bring to Genesis today are very foreign to it. We're trying to use Genesis as a tool for a purpose that it wasn't designed for, and that gets us in trouble. You can't use a thermometer to tell you if something's radioactive. 
and a Geiger counter won't tell you how hot or cold something is. They're just not designed for that. Now, that said, Scripture is not limited to its original context. We can apply it in different ways. And this is what Nephi does in 1 Nephi 19.23, where he talks about likening Isaiah. But when Nephi does that, he is essentially saying, I'm about to take Isaiah out of context and do something new with it. So it's perfectly fine to reapply scripture, to reinterpret it, provided you understand that you are not giving the original contextual meaning, that you are doing something different than Isaiah meant, doing something different than the Israelite priest meant. And I think when you realize that, a lot of those problems kind of disappear. I mentioned earlier that one of the things I think we got from Protestantism in the church is kind of this strong idea of harmonious unity and one answer. And so the idea of having two simultaneous different interpretations doing different things, we're not instinctively comfortable with that. And I don't expect people to get comfortable with that overnight necessarily. I've come to it through my own studies. One of the things I am doing in the book is obviously I'm trying to provide a lot of what I argue is kind of the original context, what it meant to the Israelites. And we should recognize what it meant to the Israelites and realize that what it meant to the Israelites doesn't completely constrain what it can mean to us. Scripture can mean different things to different people, provided we recognize the different ways we're getting at those different interpretations. Or even what it meant to a Protestant or an early member of the church 200 years ago. If we look at scripture and we never expand that model beyond this original, okay, this is what the word says, this is my worldview, I'm not going to take in any additional information, that's really going to limit what we can learn from this scripture, don't you think? Yeah, I do. In theory, if you're looking for revelation, they say, if you want revelation, go read the scriptures. But oftentimes the revelation you're looking for is not directly addressed by Jesus or Matthew or Leviticus. And in theory, you don't even need scripture for that. I mean, you can get revelation by, by thought and prayer and attending the temple or even out of the blue. I mean, when I was a missionary, we used to talk about shower revelation. That is, you'd pondered something, and then when you were distracted doing something else, you'd be in the shower, and out of the blue, it would come to you, this inspiration or revelation. If we limit Scripture just to the original context, then we're mostly being historians. And what we really want to do is be disciples. And that means knowing that original context and then figuring out through revelation what that can mean to us and how that can help us progress. Because especially in our church where we talk about line upon line and continuing revelation and many great and important things yet to be revealed, we of all Christian religions should not be into static answers. And that makes it a little bit tricky because how do you hold on to something faithfully while expecting that it might change? Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure as always. Appreciate visiting with you and good luck finishing up this project. Thank you. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. 
While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.